It's funny, when people are on an airplane and the ride is smooth, there's no bumps or anything, no one's thinking about the pilot. You're just watching the movie or eating your snack, sleeping or whatever. But as soon as things get bumpy, like everyone's thinking the same thing. Does he know what he's doing? <laughs> Did he finish flight school? Did he fall asleep? Is everything going to be okay? Have you been there before? You know, a similar thing happens to us when we suffer. Is everything okay up there? Things still under control? We doubt. We question. We wonder. His wife just had died of cancer. And in these bewildered, brutally honest words, C.S. Lewis wrote, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. It's, so this is what God is like. Has your suffering ever made you feel that way? To dislodge your confidence in God's love for you? I mean, this has been the theme of Romans 8, assurance, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, it begins, and ends with no separation. So this entire chapter is meant to ground our assurance in our salvation in Jesus Christ and telling us that we can never be separated from the love of God. So the question is, well, then why do we experience trials? And we see this especially in light of the context. Just last week, we learned that the Holy Spirit can translate our wordless groans into powerful petitions. You remember that? The Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to what? According to the will of God. And so we're thinking, hey, if my prayers are being translated into powerful petitions that are in perfect alignment with the will of God, then why isn't God answering my prayer like I want him to? And it's in reply to that, that burning question. It's, it's that burning question that occupies the gap between verse 27 and 28. So why aren't my prayers being answered? Why am I still suffering? And, and Paul replies with, with this magnificent section that has become so dear to so many Christians, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And this verse has given so much comfort to people in their trials. He unfolds this, this map of God's plan, God's good plan, and while this map that's being unfolded in verse 28 may not have all the details that we want, it has all that we need to know. This plan of God's for our lives. This really does require a response from you. And if you're here this morning and you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then you, in response to his word, can choose to either take delight and comfort from this or choose to walk away from it. Or it could be that you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't know if you're really saved or you're just, you've been visiting, you're, you're, you're wondering, you're curious, maybe you're skeptical. And, and for you, you can be part of God's plan for you by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. But either way, this will require a response from you. God's good plan for us. So what is this plan? I want to give you an overview of these three verses. Okay, you're in Romans chapter 8 and we're going to be looking at verses 28, 29, and 30 this week. Two weeks from now, after Easter Sunday, and then the following week. What I want to do at this time is to give you an overview of what these verses are teaching and so that you have an idea of what's coming up ahead. 
We see, first of all, our knowledge of God's plan, and we know. And secondly, we see this angle, the recipients of God's plan, and this is stated in two ways. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then we see the scope of God's plan, which is all things. There's nothing left out of that. And then fourth, we see the outcome of God's plan. It's described as good in verse 28, and that good is further defined in the following verse, that is, to be conformed to the image of his Son, the outcome of which is that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So the outcome of God's plan. And fifth, the certainty of God's plan. I want you to notice very carefully that the word for in verse 29 is going back to our knowledge in verse 28. And we know, okay, how do we know? Upon which basis do we know? What's the certainty of our knowledge? It is this that God has predestined it from eternity past. And this morning, we're going to take the first four of those and unfold them so that we could understand what God wants us to know about his plan, our knowledge of God's plan, the recipients of God's plan, the scope of God's plan, and the outcome of God's plan. And the question we must ask ourselves is, this, is God's plan really so good? Is it, is it really so settled, so comprehensive that I can throw myself into it, that it will give me the faith to sustain me in even the deepest trials? That's the question that we want to ask ourselves, and we'll discover that as we look at these. First of all, our knowledge of God's plan, and we know. But you notice carefully when Paul says this in verse 28, and we know, it is in contrast with something that he has said earlier in Romans chapter 8. So you're in verse 28, back up two verses to verse 26. Look at what he says in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for what? We do not know. You see the contrast? Verse 26, there are some things that we do not know. And then in verse 28, there is something that we do know. And here's what's going on here. In all the details of our lives, there are so many things that are shrouded by our ignorance and our fallibility and things we simply don't know. It's shrouded by the mists of our, of our mortality. But, but then shining right before us is a beam of light that illuminates what we do know, and it's all we really need to know. Many things we don't know. We don't know exactly how to pray for as we ought because we don't know every detail of God's will, but there is something that we do know, and that is something about God's good plan. And this is a certain knowledge. This is something that we can know for sure. What does it mean to know this? It's, it's similar, I think, to the knowledge that we have that we looked at earlier in Romans chapter 8 when Paul says that we have the Spirit of God within us and it is by the Spirit that we know that God is our Father because the Spirit prompts us to cry, Abba, Father. It's something that, yes, someone had to tell you and we know and yet, as soon as we know it, our heart says, yes, that is true. He does. He does work all things for good. And this knowledge of God's good plan is not something we know merely as a fact. Now, it's important to, to get this point because there are many things that we know as facts. I know for a fact that Concord is the capital of New Hampshire, right? I know for a fact that Richmond is the capital of Virginia. But those facts don't really move me deeply. I know for a fact that it was in the 70s, I think, 60s or 70s yesterday, right? That fact really did me no good until I went out there into the sunshine just to bask in those yellow rays. Like, this is the kind of knowledge we're talking about. It's not just that we know that. It's that we live in the experience of it. 
We bask in the rays of God's good sovereignty. It's that kind of knowledge. It's not just factual, it's experiential. So this is something we know. And here's the second angle of this good plan, and is the recipients of God's plan. The men and women and the boys and girls who are part of this plan are described as those who love God who are called according to his purpose. Now, we need to clarify this really carefully because it would be easy for us to misunderstand something here. When Paul says that it is for those who love God, some people might jump to the conclusion that because they love God, God has a good plan for them. That is, if God is looking around, he's looking for people that love him, he's like, oh, he loves me, I have a good plan for him. Oh, she loves me, I'll have a good plan for her. This is not what's going on at all. That's why Paul follows up this description, those who love God, with this, those who are called according to his purpose. It is not that God plans all things for our good because we love him. We love him because he's called us. Our love for God springs from our relationship with him. It's not that God comes into a relationship with us because we love God. Right? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And so this descriptor of those for whom this plan is working is saying it is true that those who are called according to his purpose are those who love God. People that have been called, the children of God, have a love for God as their heavenly father. And it is these for whom God plans all things for good. It's those who have been called according to this plan. If it was true that God's good plan depended on our love for him, we could never be certain of God's plan because we never can love God enough. It's only because of the work of Jesus Christ that we've been reconciled to God and have in our hearts a supernatural love for the one whom at one point we were enemies with. But now we love God because he first loved us. Is his plan really so good? Is it really so great that it can outweigh our present suffering? We've looked at our knowledge of this plan. We looked at the recipients of this plan. And now let's look at the scope of God's plan. The scope here is all things. All things. And the question we should ask, okay, if God is working for my good, what is he able to use in my life? Does he only look at the good things in my life and say, oh, I can use this. I can use this because it's good and I'll weave this in. No, the scope of God's plan is everything. There's nothing too evil, there's nothing too disastrous, there's nothing too painful that God is unable to work for your good. When I was a, a boy, upper elementary school, junior high, I would get these model car kits. They come in a box with all these little plastic pieces. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And apparently the manufacturers thought that it would be a great idea to, to make people spend hours and hours in putting these things together. Maybe then they'd get more value out of it. As a somewhat impatient boy, I would open the box and look at the picture on the box. And I'd pull out the pieces that looked like made sense to me. The big exterior pieces, you know. And I'd shove the instructions aside and try to piece it together as it made sense to me. And inevitably, the outcome would be a kind of strange-looking vehicle that really didn't match the picture on the box and a lot of extra pieces. I wonder what all these pieces were for. They must have been for something, but they didn't fit into my plan. Now imagine if instead of assembling a, a model car, I was assembling a real vehicle. How disastrous would that be? What are all these extra pieces all over my garage? 
What if instead of assembling a car, I was assembling my life? And look at all these extra pieces, the painful parts, the confusing parts, the perplexing parts, uh, the parts that I would rather leave out and see, what, what do all these have to do with my life? How do all these fit in? My friends, with God, there are no wasted pieces. There are no unnecessary parts. God takes everything and he fits them into his good plan for you. And there may be some things in your life right now and you think, I don't know how this fits in. How can that thing that happened to me 10 years ago, how can it possibly fit into any plan that can can conceivably be called good? How can this loneliness right now, how can it fit in? How can the slander that happened a while ago, how can that fit in? How can my child's sickness fit in? How can that past divorce fit in? We see these extra pieces, and God says, there are no extra pieces in my plan, because I work it all for good. The scope of God's plan is everything. And we see this theme of all things for our good. We see it also here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This theme of all things, God gives you all things as a gift for good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 21 and 23, Paul writes this, For all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's. And look at verse 37 of Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, no, in all these things, right, God's plan, the scope of his plan, isn't limited to just the things that you think can fit into your life. It's everything, all things, in all things. This is no naive view of all things. There are some things that have happened to you and some things that are going on in your life that are unquestionably bad. But the reality is that God can take even those things and work them for good. In fact, that is exactly what is meant by being a more than conqueror. A a mere conqueror, not a more than conqueror, a mere conqueror would just flatten the trials, get them out of my way, a more than conqueror, God makes us a more than conqueror by turning our terrors into the very means of our triumph. That's why Paul can write, no, no, not despite all these things, not without all these things, but in all these things we are more than conquerors. A mere conqueror would have his enemy destroyed, but a more than conqueror, as God makes us, has his enemies transformed to be the very means of of our triumph. God can take the wave that just threatens to smash you and transform it into the wave that brings you home. He could take the beasts that threaten to tear you apart and make them the ones upon which you ride to victory. That's what it means to be a more than conqueror. In all things, that's the scope of God's plan. What is the outcome of God's plan? Where is this plan going? And again, the question we're asking is, is this plan really good enough? Is it secure enough? Is it comprehensive enough to outweigh my present suffering? And here's the reality. It is because the outcome, as we've been seeing for the past several weeks, when Paul begins this section in verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? With the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
There is a glory that outweighs all our present suffering. This glory is so great that the universe is groaning for it. And this is a glory that is so great and so weighty that we ourselves are groaning for it. And it's a glory so great that the Spirit himself is interceding that it would come about. This is absolutely stupendous, magnificent glory. What is it? It's the outcome of God's plan. The glory that's described in verse 18 of chapter 8, the glory for which the universe groans, the glory for which we groan, the glory for which the Spirit prays is the outcome of God's plan. And we see that here in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's a, there's a twofold component of this. That is, our good and God's glory. Our good, conformed to the image of his Son. God's glory that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. And here's where I think a lot of people get confused about Romans 8:28. They see the word good and import all their own definition of good right into there. All things work together for good. Like good like cotton candy? Like good like lollipops? Like no, no, no. This is a good that you must you must take Romans 8:29 and see and, and see that as the good. Because that's what's being talked about here. And unless you have that understanding of Romans 8.28, you will totally misunderstand it and, furthermore, I think, lead you to further despair in your circumstances. And here's why. There is a story that I've seen passed around from time to time, and it's an imaginary conversation between God and a person who had a bad day. The story goes like this. The person asks God, God, why did you let so much stuff happen to me today? And God says, what do you mean? And the person says, well, I woke up late. My car took forever to start. At lunch, they made my sandwich wrong. I had to wait. On the way home, my phone went dead just as I picked up a call. And on top of it all, when I got home, I just went to soak my feet in my new foot massager and relax, but it wouldn't work. Nothing has gone right for me today. Why did you do this, God? Now, here's where the story gets really bad. God says, well, the reason why you woke up late is because the death angel was at your bed this morning, and I had to send one of my angels to battle for your life. I didn't let your car start because there was a drunk driver on your route that would have hit you if you were on the road. There was salmonella in your first sandwich that was made for you. I didn't want you to catch that, and I knew you couldn't afford to miss work. Your phone went dead because the person that was calling you was going to give you false witness about what you said on that call. Oh, and the foot massager had a shortage that was going to throw all, all the power out in your house, and I didn't want you to be in the dark. And the person talking with God says, I'm sorry, God. And God says, don't ever doubt that my plan for you is good. Now, the problem with that story is that it completely misses the point of Romans 8.28. Because sometimes the drunk driver does hit the van filled with kids. And sometimes you do eat the sandwich of salmonella and get sick and miss work and miss pay. And sometimes people do use their words to ruin a reputation. And sometimes the diagnosis does come back as really bad. And sometimes the power does go out and it's all dark and you're filled with questions. Does that mean that God's plan has failed? If, if God's plan is as shallow as keeping you healthy and comfortable, then God's plan has failed. But that's not God's plan. That's not the outcome of God's plan. The outcome of God's plan is far better than that. The good that God is working in our lives is to be conformed to the image of his Son. And it is that good, it is, it is that highest outcome, alone, that can truly satisfy you and glorify God. You are not the sort of creature that can be satisfied by a job, even by health, 
by children or grandchildren or a spouse or anything else other than an infinite God because you have in your own heart and I have in my heart an infinite craving, a, a vacuum, a hole that can be filled only with the perfect God. And, and you can stand in the presence of that God with joy only as you become like Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And that is why the outcome of God's plan for you as a believer in Christ is to be conformed to the image of his Son. And that is the way he brings glory to himself so that our highest good and God's greatest glory are accomplished. The question I often ask myself when I, I study these things and I prepare to preach these things is, is this real? Is this real? I referred to C.S. Lewis at the beginning of this message and the words of confusion and doubt that he wrote after his wife died of cancer. A little later on he wrote, I'm gradually coming to see that the door is no longer shut and bolted. That my idea of God is not a divine idea. That God had to expand his understanding of who God really was and of God's good plan for him. That's a good thing. It is said of Hudson Taylor that even the missionary to China, that even amid times of great suffering, he could be heard in the wee hours of the morning singing, Jesus, I am resting. Resting in the joy of what you are. See, God is using all things to make his children more like Jesus. Often I, I pray throughout the week that the Lord would help me as I, I study these truths. Just to be honest, sometimes my heart is so full, I think, how can I ever, how can I ever communicate the depth of this and, and the joy of this to you? And I pray, Lord, bring something along that would help me just bring this to life for my people. This Friday afternoon, I got a surprising visit from an old friend of mine. His name was Chris, and he gave me permission to share this with you. I hadn't seen him in 10 years. And Chris came into my office, and he said that he was in Boston for a checkup, in which the doctor told me he'd have to have surgery. It was a surgery that Chris had had 15 years ago as a 15-year-old boy which he had to have operation on his hip bones that left him unable to play sports. Chris told me that as a 15-year-old boy lying in bed for three days, the only comfort he had from the pressure on his backside was a bar that was above his head. He'd lift himself above the bar just to relieve some of the pressure. When he finally was able to sit up in bed and move his feet to the side of the bed, it was, took all his strength and it was incredibly painful. It would mean that there would be no soccer for Chris. No football for Chris, no track, no baseball, 15 years old, limping awkwardly around school as friends had to carry his bags for him. But Chris looked me in the eye and said, I've learned so much about contentment and humility and joy. Is that something that you would have asked for for a 15-year-old boy? Is that one of the pieces of the box? You'd say, I don't know how this fits in, and yet God is fitting it in to make him more like Jesus, to give him a greater glimpse of how much more Jesus can fulfill needs that soccer and football can't fill. God says, I'm taking your terrors and transforming them into your triumph. I'm making you more like Jesus. And Chris sat in my office and told me, it won't be any fun for my son to see him daddy 
lying on his back again after recovering, recovering from a surgery. But I have an opportunity to show my boy something about joy and contentment in Christ. Any missing pieces? Anything God can't take and use to transform into something to make you more like Jesus and ultimately to conform you to the image of his son so that you can be in the presence of God and enjoy him forever? There's no wasted pieces. It's all things, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Not a glory that comes from us. It's a glory that's reflected like the glory of the moon. It's the glory that outweighs our suffering. It's the glory that Paul spoke of in verse 18 when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God is doing something great in your life through your suffering if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But oh, unbeliever, you have no assurance of this. You have no assurance of this because you're not believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you're here this morning and, and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, there is there, there's no more urgent need in your life than to put your faith in him. And I beg you to do that today. Don't wait any longer. It doesn't matter how many people thought you're already a Christian. For those of us who are believers, I said there's going to be a choice. Remember, it's not a spectator sport. What are you going to do about this? Are you going to delight in God's plan or are you going to reject it? This is God's good plan for you. God's good plan for his children.